Episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed. And uh, we're bringing you some baseball history. Uh, bi weekly. Oh, bi weekly. Bi weekly baseball history. We're back on a regular schedule. Uh, so you'll be hearing this on Wednesday, February 3rd, or a couple days after, whenever you're listening to this. Uh, next episode, uh, two weeks later, I believe it's the 17th, it'll be coming out. Uh, super excited to bring you uh, some baseball history in Black History Month. So uh, this is Black History Month. You know, we we uh, love doing stories and, and looking into the history and stuff. It's something that's that's not shown uh, all the time in, in uh, our regular baseball media. Uh, definitely check out our stories on Cool Papa Bell and Mamie Peanut Johnson. Those are definitely two favorites uh, from way back, uh, someone yeah. someone from the Mamie Johnson uh, story makes a little appearance in my story. I'll give that a uh, little tidbit. Oh, shit! All right, uh, that's exciting to hear. Uh, so super excited, Edgy here sharing with me. I got no idea what the story is. I'm about to hear. Uh, can't wait. What ready? do you got for us? Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, Be- ready. Well, before I get started, I just want to say a uh, quick shout. I'll start. Yeah. <laughs> I got a quick <laughs> shout out here to our uh, friends in the Warrior Room, as we usually do out in uh, California. Because Saturday I did a guided meditation with uh, Coach Laura Ray, who also hosts the Wellness of Madness podcast, who's currently on season two. Um, it's a great podcast. Everyone yes. should check it out. It's the Health of Wellness, right? The Wellness of Madness podcast. Wellness of Madness. Wow, I fucked that up. Sorry, Laura. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, um, so I'm going to get into my story now, but before I do quickly, I also want to give another shout out to uh, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick, and uh, the Storied podcast, which is kind of where I got a bit of inspiration for a few stories uh, in this. I actually uh, had a different story, and uh, it it was... I don't know. I didn't feel that it was it was exactly appropriate for, uh, or I wasn't able to get as much depth as I wanted to, and I yeah. ended up changing my subject. It's a it's a simpler story, but uh, you know. Anyway, I'm not going to say too much about it. Anyway, I'm going to start in a minute. But an- another thing I want to mention before <laughs> I do actually, I want to apologize for uh, some incomplete research on my. Tootsie Rolls story, actually, Sean. Oh, goodness. What happened? Well, um, I made the mistake of, because it wasn't actually about Bob Watson. Yes. I didn't look into the life of Bob Watson. And I mentioned in an article that he was 69 years old and still a coach and still involved with these things. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't realize that that article was written a few years ago and Bob actually. Uh, unfortunately passed away on May 14th, 2020. So uh, oh. rest in peace to Bob Watson. Um, rest in peace. Yeah. That, that's a, that's too bad, but you know, that's a, I mean, that's a pretty big oversight. Like, that's yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's a pretty big oversight. Yeah, yeah. That's why I wanted, that's why I wanted to mention it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. We do our corrections on here if if we make a mistake like that. That's uh, don't don't worry too much. Uh, you know, it, normally we just assume someone's alive, uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's very sad. So rest in peace. Also, uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at doing baseball and doing dot baseball before we get into it. So many false starts today. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate you clearing that up. I can't wait. That's amazing. That's a fantastic podcast too. Uh, that, that Bob Kendrick, uh, was on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And also to kind of lead back into the subject of black history month, uh, to mention about Bob Watson again, is that, yeah. uh, I, I think I did mention in the podcast, but you know, uh, it is a fun fact that he was actually the first, uh, black, uh, general manager to win a world series, which was with the Yankees in 96. Amazing. Okay. So are you ready for this story? I'm super stoked. Let's go. This is the actual start. Okay. Robert C. Bob Motley was born March 11th, 1923 in Otagaville, Alabama to sharecropping father, William Motley and a domestic working mother, Eula Inez or Inez. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of this guy? It sounds super familiar, but I can't put my finger. I feel like on I it. ask you this at the beginning of every episode. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> I'll do it to you. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> the sixth of eight children born to the union. His father died from tainted well water when Bob was only four years old. Oh God! Yeah, the fa- even worse. The family suspects the water was poisoned by a member of the Ku Klux Klan who didn't like that William wanted to expand his land. Terrible. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. It's just like you po- literally poisoning the well. Like yeah. literally poisoning the well. That's disgusting. Yeah. Eula moved the family to her hometown of Anniston, Alabama, where young Robert's formative years were spent sitting in a one room schoolhouse in his church, doing chores for his mama, or sneaking into the woods with his best friend to throw rocks. Members of the KKK would drive through the neighborhood at night, and Eula had to make sure her children lay on the floor below the windows. Not a good situation. No, uh, no. This is in the, the 30s, you said? Yeah, this would be, yeah. Uh, yeah well, it would be the late 20s, I guess, because uh, he was born in 23. His father yeah. died when he was four, and then they moved shortly yeah. after that. But e- either way, it's a, I would say we, the history there is... is pretty pretty bad yeah uh to help his family financially bob began working as a bellboy at the all-white jefferson davis hotel when he was 12 years old dividing his time between school and work he had little time for play but would soon discover a passion for sports particularly baseball without the means to buy or the access to equipment bob and his playmates made their own bats and balls by using tree limbs or broom handles for bats and rocks wrapped with rags and strings for balls. So real, pa- yeah, real passion there. Uh, Bob Bob discovered baseball thanks to his older brothers, but it was a kindly white shopkeeper named Locker Burns who stoked his passion for the game. Locker Burns. Locker Burns. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, why is there always an amazing name in all of these stories? I, I, I think, like, it, just having Burns as a last name automatically, like, no one with the first or last name Burns has a normal first name. Like, it's always an eccentric. <laughs> Charles um, Montgomery. 
yeah 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 exactly no but there's the there is something to it but yeah locker bird like that's not even an option for a name nowadays like it, maybe there is i'm going on facebook after this and finding the lockers in it. i'm gonna assume that locker is a nickname but there was, I would there, assume so there was no other name offered in my research so uh well that's we're gonna assume gonna that that's his name Bob would, yeah, exactly. Bob would clean and stock Burns Market every morning before school, and in return, the Santa lookalike would pay him $4 a week and share stories about Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Walter Johnson. When Burns died suddenly, his wife arranged for Bob to become a bellboy at the hotel where she and her husband had lived, the Jefferson Davis. Bob grew up at the hotel, literally and figuratively. As part of his job description, he supplied booze and arranged, quote, dates for the soldiers from nearby Fort McClellan. Oh, what? What? Do you, what? <laughs> yeah, he arranged for dates. So we got a we got a, a young black man working at the Jefferson Davis Hotel, yes. which is all white. Yeah. And all the white guys are just like, yo, get me hookers. That's right. All right. Well, they were dates, though. It says oh, here sorry, dates. dates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. While, dates. While working at the hotel, Motley had his first acquaintances with a baseball player from the minor leagues. He knew he would one day play baseball like the gentleman he admired as a young man. By the time he was 16, he was a man of the world. He had his own car, a knapsack stuffed with money and an invitation from his older brother William to join him in Ohio. Having endured enough discrimination in the South, Bob boarded a northbound freight train and hoboed his way up to see his brother and his uncle Samuel Parker. Yeah, so it didn't take the car. <laughs> no, no. He's like, I got a sack full of money and a vehicle. Maybe he sold the vehicle. For That's the what I was going to say. Probably. Well, I just got his, his bindle stick and jumped on a train, I guess. Yeah, he maybe just got more money after selling the car. Yeah, well, I, I just love that. Just like, well, the train's free. It's going there anyways. <laughs> That's probably true. He arrived in Dayton in October 1939 and soon enough was working at Inland Manufacturing, reaming out the barrels of M1 carbines at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It was in Dayton that Bob was introduced to Negro baseball. The all-black semi-pro Dayton Marcos played at Duck Stadium, but once a year, bona fide Negro League teams would come through town on a barnstorming tour, and in the spring of 1940, all of black Dayton came out to see the Toledo Crawfords featuring player manager Oscar Charleston play the St. Louis Stars. Bob was particularly taken with a young, lanky Crawfords pitcher named Connie Johnson. In what little spare time he had, Motley worked on his own pitching. The next spring rolled around, and it was announced that the Cleveland Buckeyes would be playing the Detroit Black Sox at Duck Stadium. Bob convinced himself he was ready. The day before the game, he talked Cleveland manager Walter Birch into giving him a tryout, and Birch was impressed enough to tell him to show up the following day. So he just stalked the coach of the team and was just like, I'm good at baseball. Pretty much, yep. Amazing. And he did like a little pitching demo on the side, and he was like, hey, I would look all right. 
All right. Come on down Come tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. I love that there's like a minor league, like a, like a semi-pro league. He's like, do you play on that team? No. Nope. <laughs> yep. But I'm going to play on your team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the next day, when the Buckeyes arrived at the park, Birch told him, kid, you got the apple today. Bob found out quickly that he was in over his head. Oh, my God. <laughs> Single, double, double, triple on his first four pitches. Oof. <laughs> yeah, oof is right. Bert- oh, my God. No, he just showed up. Like, on this, clearly, it's an exhibition, right? It's like a barnstorming. So, like, it really. It doesn't like, really it, matter. No. It doesn't but- really. I love that. It's just like, yeah, the pitcher's hung over. You're pitching today, kid, that just showed up at my hotel yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you suck. Ah, fuck. Now I got to change my plans. (laughs) Birch came out to the mound and told him, quote, boy, I thought you said you could pitch. No one else better get another hit off you. (laughs) It's a tall order. Just threw four pitches and gave up how many bases? Three, uh, seven, eight, eight bases on four pitches. Yeah. On the next pitch... The batter hit a home run. <laughs> <laughs> so that's four or five batters and five runs. So it's five nothing. Yeah. As the incensed Birch came running out of the dugout and Motley bolted right past him. Quote, I ran as fast <laughs> as I could down the dugout stairs, through the clubhouse, out the stadium gate, and all the way back to my bedroom. Oh, my. <laughs> he says, quote, There I sat on my bed, huffing and puffing and incredibly embarrassed when I realized I was still in the team uniform. No. (laughs) I mean, keep it. (laughs) I would just keep it. He thought about... I guess he left his other... (laughs) He thought about... (laughs) Damn it. His other pants are like there. Like, right? Like... (laughs) Yeah, his original clothes would be at the stadium. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so... should mention we're remotely, so there's a bit of a delay between us. Yeah. Bit of a delay. Apologies for for talking over each other. Yeah. He thought of sending the uniform back to the Buckeyes, but after a few weeks, he merely tossed it into a dumpster along with his glove and his dream. Oh. (laughs) And apparently those other pants that he just left. (laughs) Yeah, well... Who knows what happened to them? Yeah. Oh man, that's that's but that's that's his debut. Oh my god, and that is just that's uh, rough. That's rough as they get. But at the same point, what the hell, man? <laughs> I just love that you thought you could pitch. And it's just like sorry. He just he just ran away. Yeah. No. I know. Like, like uh, if, if oh man, if if this like obviously I know there's more story to this, but that in itself is like an amazing small story. I love he just throws the uniform out too. Like, like, come on, like keep it at least. But at the same point, you're probably pretty upset. He probably he says he threw away his dreams, so he probably threw it in a dumpster in a very dramatic fashion. Yeah, no, absolutely. There was music and everything. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, so as World War II raged on, Bob voluntary enlisted into the Marine Corps on May 21st, 1943. He was shipped off to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, a base with two distinct camps divided by the New River. Quote, black and white soldiers could die together, writes Motley, but God forbid they have a chance to live together. Segregation. Yeah. He's got a point. Jim Crow. You got America. Yeah. Uh, unbeknownst to him at the time, 
He was making history, becoming one of the country's first black Marines, known as the Montford Point Marines. Battling in the South Pacific, Modley helped invade Saipan, Tinian, Guam, and Okinawa. He was assigned to the 52nd Infantry. He was shipped off to Okinawa as part of the third wave of Americans to invade the Pacific Island. Once his company established a beachhead, he found himself in a fierce battle and ducked into a foxhole. Quote, we were taught to stick our feet out first, not our heads, he says. I stuck my right foot out twice, and the second time, a bullet went through it. Jesus. What, like, literally sticking his... And so if anybody, once again, I'm going to be my, my World War II history nerd. If you were in the third wave on Okinawa, it was actually worse for you. Because it was one of those battles that got worse as it went on. So, holy shit. Like, especially being in Saipan and Tinian and all those places as well. And then you end up on Okinawa, like, at the worst possible time. Like, mm-hmm. that's... Mm-hmm. So he gets shot through the leg because he's, like, <laughs> sticking his he's leg. Sticking I mean, his it's foot out to see if, Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Better than better sticking your head out. out. Yeah, yeah, but he's sticking it out twice. I love that he's just, like... <laughs> <laughs> Doing a little bit well, of a hokey pokey. And- <laughs> better than he stuck it out. Better than he stuck it out once, and then was like, "It's good," and I'm gonna stick my head out now. Yeah, well, that's the that's a good point. They probably yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's how he got his Purple Heart, and yep. became an umpire. What? Yeah. No. He got shot in the foot. Became an umpire. Just Happens like that-, that. What's this guy's name? Bob Motley. Jesus Christ. Oh, man, I, you'll, you'll figure, you'll find out. But yeah, okay. okay. Amazing. While recovering, fate intervened and Motley would discover that his near-death injury had led him to discover what would become a lifelong passion, umpiring. Hearing a pickup baseball game being played by distressed soldiers near the unit hospital, a wounded Motley hobbled over to the makeshift field and volunteered to umpire. He told NPR in 2014, quote, I could look out the window and could see there was a ball field, so I decided I'd hop on with my crutches, and they needed an umpire. So I said, if you don't mind, I can call balls and strikes. They gave me a mask, and I got one of them breast protectors, and I, call, and I started calling balls and strikes. Amazing. Simple as Amazing. that. Simple as that. Never having umpired before, the players liked his demeanor, so Motley spent more and more of his time as an arbiter. When his brother James, who was serving in the army, showed up at the hospital looking for him, the supervising nurse went to get him and found him behind the plate of a game. (laughs) Honorably discharged on February 1st, 1946, Motley went home to Alabama to visit his mother. While there, he agreed to drive James to Kansas City to see their sister Geraldine. Motley had every intention of returning to Dayton, but he fell in love with Kansas City, the thriving black community, the jazz, the food, and the monarchs. Bob landed a job at General Motors' assembly plant and worked for the auto company for 37 years. That's so cool. So he just he goes to drive his way to visit his sister or something in Kansas City and just... Yeah, that's true. He just ends up for nearly four decades. That's amazing. Yeah, I love, I love just the, I love those stories of just like when when people do that, right? Like when people just go somewhere and it's just like I live here now. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 
but obviously Kansas City is was probably way better than Dayton and way way better than uh, Mississippi. So uh, Alabama, good for him. Alabama, good for him. Alabama, whatever. Mississippi, Alabama. It's yeah. uh, it's uh, it's kind of one thing. It'll probably there. be very similar at that time. Probably similar yeah. right now. Uh, when yeah, yeah. when Motley wasn't mopping floors at the GM plant. He would head over to the parade park fields and the umpire equipment he bought with his hard-earned money or study for his high school diploma. Remember, he left at 16. Yeah. So, uh, in, yeah, 19, yeah, in 1947, Motley became the first African-American to umpire in Kansas City's respected Ban Johnson League. Amazing. You know what the Ban Johnson, Johnson League is? No. It's like a summer league in Kansas City that's been around since, like, 1927. A, is it still around? Yeah. It's a league. Oh. It's yeah, it's a league for players up to the age of 23 and the majority of players are either present college players or high school graduates desiring to further their skills with their eyes on a potential college uh baseball future. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the Cape Cod League or the uh what was the league we talked about in the Savannah Bananas episode? I forget the name of the league, but uh, yeah. yeah, but it's uh, the so, yeah. So it's it's yeah, it's a kind of a in between league for for yeah, college players, good high school players. So so he's doing that. Mm-hmm. He had his sights set on the Negro leagues, but he also didn't want to make the same mistake he had years before when he prematurely thought he could pitch to Negro leaguers. He took his time honing his craft and style. By 1948. He felt he was ready. On opening day at Blues Stadium, equipment in hand, he approached the three umpires working the Monarchs game and told them he wanted to join their ranks. What the fuck? Like, did you not learn? <laughs> like, <laughs> I love it. Like, first of all, though, first of all, it's like, I got to hone my craft. And it's like a year later. And he's like, I'm ready. Like, I get it. Like, a year is a long time, but it's really not for a professional career. And then... It's not like, so I applied. It was, so these umpires were standing there about to umpire the So game. I just went and bothered them. <laughs> yeah. So he told them he wanted to join the ranks. Quote, I went to the stadium and talked to the umpire crew, and the chief umpire at the time said, kid, you don't know nothing about umpiring. So I said, I umpired in the Marine Corps. Please let me umpire. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and he said, well, get out of here. <laughs> He did. <laughs> Even mentioned the Ban Johnson League. Like that probably would have been better than the Marine. I mean, maybe Marine Corps gets you a little more respect, but yeah, yeah. But it didn't. He told him to get out of here. The head umpire, <laughs> former Monarch catcher and manager Frank Duncan, told him to come back in a few months. But Motley kept showing up week after week, wearing Duncan down. Amazing. <laughs> One Sunday. I love that. This is. This is wait. This is where our, like parents like get the like any uh, any like boomer parents that are like, if you want a job, you just show up and you don't take no for an answer. This is this kind of shit they get that from. They learned it they from grew- Bob Motley. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, Bob Motley would played, just. I played major league baseball once. I just stopped the coach, <laughs> told him I was good, and the next day I was playing. You should just call John Gibbons. I don't. I only got to throw five pitches, but you know. <laughs> so Sunday, when Vernon Johnson, a veteran umpire given to drinking, failed to show up for a game between the Monarchs and the Memphis Red Sox, Duncan told him, "Kid, you're at third base." <laughs> <laughs> 
Motley recalled, quote, the president of the league was there and he said, you did a good job. I'm going to give you $5. Go and get your gear ready. Call me in the morning. And I want you to start traveling in the league. He did it. So that worked out. It worked out this time. He quickly developed a unique and animated style unlike any other umpire. Bob's trademarks included jumping high into the air to call a runner out on a close play and doing the splits low to the ground with his arms stretched wide open to signal a safe safe call. He made sure his bellows of you're out and safe were loud enough for everyone in the stadium to hear. He remembers one lady telling him, quote, do it pretty for me, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, the closer the play, the better I liked it, he says. It just got into my blood. <laughs> I love it so much. Do it love, pretty like, for me, baby. Do it pretty <laughs> for me. <laughs> I love that. I love that this this woman was just like, oh yeah, Mister Umpire, call it for me. Do the splits. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, like wait, no, but like umpires just take themselves way too seriously these days. That's that's all that this is telling me too. That's like, a, you got to do a good it. job. But, like, I love the showmanship. Yeah, this guy sounds like he pioneered the showmanship. Uh, As time went on, Motley moved up the ranks of both General Motors and the Negro American League. Duncan, who was feeling the effects of a lifetime of squatting, let Motley take his place behind the plate. So he found himself calling balls and strikes for his one-time idol, Connie Johnson. Being an umpire is a tough enough job, but Motley often found himself riding buses with the losing team. He recounts one such occasion in the opening chapter of his book when he boarded the bus with the Monarchs in Chattanooga after they had lost and he had ejected Hank Bayless, the third baseman. That's a pretty rough, uh, rough go of things. Just <laughs> you're traveling with the team. Yeah. Uh, on a dark stretch of the highway, Bayless went after Motley with a butcher knife. <laughs> the umpire parried. <laughs> The umpire parried with the face mask he carried for just such an occasion. For- what? He, I, he prepped for it. He prepped for it. He knew. He's like, one of these guys is going to come at me one of these days. Ah, I threw Bayless out today. He's crazy. He tried to fight that girl. <laughs> he called that girl a peanut. <laughs> Throwback. Yeah. Uh, Fortunately, Monarchs manager Buck O'Neill leapt to his defense telling Bayless, quote, if you ever touch that umpire again, you will never play another game in this league. I would hope so. Like, not touch. Like, with the knife, the cleaver you have. Well, how are you going to play without an umpire? Oh, exactly. And with blood everywhere. That's right. It's going to ruin your Where's uniforms. The umpire? Oh, Bayless killed him on the bus. And our uniforms are ruined. <laughs> Uh, Motley in 2010 wrote with his son Byron in an article for Sabre entitled, No, I'm a spectator like you, umpiring in the Negro American League. Quote, people didn't like the umpire back in the days of the Negro Leagues and they still don't really like umpires today. Some things never change. It was pretty common in the Negro Leagues that if the catcher didn't like the way an umpire was calling balls and strikes, he would purposely let a pitch go by and let it smack the umpire right in the face mask. That happened yeah, to me. Happens. Yeah, that happened to me at least a dozen, half a dozen times. Of course, the catcher would apologize profusely, trying to act as if he had just misjudged the ball, but it was always obvious he had done it deliberately. Of course, after he'd pulled this stunt, I'd eject him. 
One time after throwing out Memphis Red Sox catcher Casey Jones for doing this, Buster Haywood had the nerve to come out to question why I was tossing his catcher. So just to get his ire up for asking such an inane question, insane question, I tossed his pitcher out too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just the, uh, I guess you don't really, there was less people to answer to in these days. You were really running shit. Yeah. When you get hit in the throat, chin, forehead, or face, even wearing a face mask by a 90 or 95 mile an hour fastball, believe me, you know you've been hit. It stings much worse than a foul tip ball because it's a direct hit. Sometimes the ball would be thrown so hard it would actually get stuck in the mask. Once a ball came through my mask, just nipping on my cheekbone. Thank God the front part of the mask bore the brunt of the impact before it slipped inside. Oh, the players did horrible things to us umpires, but we were troopers and brushed it off and kept on going. Jesus. Like, yeah, well, I mean, I've still, I mean... I don't know if I've seen that personally, but I've definitely seen uh, seen catchers. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, know. I don't think that's like, you know, distinct to that period of time. Yeah, but it sounds like it might have been a little bit more prevalent uh, or prevalent in that in that uh, in that time period. Uh, maybe, maybe like, you know, but Jesus, like, <laughs> oh, it, it seems it seems like. Uh, yeah, yeah. It seems like gamesmanship and like, you know, messing with each other was like a lot more common in like all the leagues at that time. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So one time Motley got into another th- dispute, this time with Buck O'Neill, the man who had saved him from Bayless's knife. <laughs> I know you saved my life, Buck, but you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. He had to throw the manager out of the game after he called him a blind son of a bitch. <laughs> but on yeah, the bus. enough. But on the bus back to the hotel, Motley realized that he didn't have a room for the night. He sheepishly explained the situation to O'Neill, who told him, Kid, no problem. Don't worry. You can sleep with me. <laughs> <laughs> Make it pretty, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Make it pretty for me, baby. <laughs> so Buck O'Neill is basically the greatest. Like this, this, this podcast is not about him, but just underlying how amazing Buck O'Neill was as a person. Yeah. So Motley and O'Neill slept back to back in the same small bed that night. <laughs> uh, Motley continued in his Saber article, quote, interestingly enough, women were more fanatical about the game than men. They came in droves and were always dressed to kill in their sundresses, flowery hats and high heeled shoes. In the days preceding a big Sunday game, beauty shops would give discounts to women so they could get their hair done and ready for the big day. During the week, you might see a woman's hair looking pretty nappy, but come Saturday before the game, you'd walk down 18th and Vine in Kansas City or Maine and McCall in Memphis, and you could practically smell the hair burning from the hot combs and curling irons the beauticians were using getting those dues done. Amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's the place to be on a Sunday, and and it's uh, it kind of goes with what I was talking about here. Uh, I don't think I mention it later on, but um, like the black churches uh, on the Sundays at, in these days, like uh, before the night games and stuff, and even j- during the times of the night games, if there was a Sunday doubleheader, black churches would move the service up from eleven till ten, so that. People oh. could get out to watch the game at one. So people would be going to the game dressed in their church clothes, just looking dapper as hell. 
amazing. Yeah. So, uh, in 1951, Bob married Edna Perline Hayes. The couple would have two children. With a growing family to support, Bob continued to follow his passion for umpiring, often getting a leave of absence from his job to go on the road. Perline, as she was known, worked as an equal employment manager at the U.S. Department of Agriculture for 39 years. After retirement, she worked as a recruiter for Webster University. Perline received her bachelor's degree in economics in 1982 from Rockhurst College. She went on to receive a master's degree in management from Webster University in 1989. And in 1994, the university awarded her the Distinguished Alumni Award, a dedicated proponent of women's progress. Perline became the first African-American to be honored as National American Businesswoman of the Year in 1993 by the American Business Women's Association. Good for her. That's yeah. like, talk about keeping up with your education. Until yeah, like after <laughs> retirement, just like went for a fucking master's degree and killed it and, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, she was an active member of the Metropolitan Women's Roundtable and Federally Employed Women, Rotary Club 13 Auxiliary, and a sought-after public speaker nationwide. So, you know, doing the work. Uh, quote, yes, the women were dedicated supporters. I've been called, quote, you no good so-and-so umpire or you blind bat by more women from the stands than a male spectator would ever have thought to be doing. Women love their hometown teams. A buddy of mine told me once about catching the fury of a group of women in the old Blue Room Tavern in Kansas City for bad-mouthing the Monarchs after a game. They jumped on and beat him, not brutally, what? but enough that he never said another negative word about the monarchs in public again. I was uh, expecting a, uh, a tongue lashing, <laughs> not a beating. No, they beat the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> not brutally, though. Not brutally. Not brutally, though. Just, just hurt him. They just, just hurt him. They just broke his nose injury. and blackened both his eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple of bruises. Yeah. If you think the players in the Negro Leagues were a handful to deal with, they were a cakewalk compared to the fans. Fans were relentless and showed no mercy on umpires. In a few of the cities like Birmingham, Indianapolis, and Cincinnati, the fans had a little song they chanted that was a crowd favorite, Kill the Umpire, Kill the Umpire. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. They had a song about killing the umpire. Yeah, yeah okay. It was so common and popular among the fans that I expected to someday turn on the radio and hear Count Basie's band or somebody else make a real version of the song. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to be like, it was only a matter of time till they killed one of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was only a matter of time till they made it a song. Yeah. Several times so when... They, they Sorry, they're they're basically like a like a British uh, soccer crowd today. Just yeah. like yeah, we got we got songs for everything. Yeah, and if the umpire fucks up. We got this song. And we about have this murder. song about murdering him. Yeah. All right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Several times when the crowds were really pissed off about a loss, the umpire crew would have to wait for the entire stadium and parking lot to clear before we'd exit. We didn't want to take any chances. <laughs> in one particular game at my beloved Blues Stadium, in front of my now-adopted hometown folks of Kansas City, I found out just how intense the wrath of Negro League fans could get. 
I think I've blocked out the exact scenario that led up to the particular incident, but it's the only time I was actually afraid of the fans. All I remember is that on the last out of the game, 15,000 Monarchs fans decided to blame Bob Motley for the team's loss. All of a sudden, a sea of Coca-Cola bottles started sailing past my head like bazookas being fired from Uzis. So is that a direct quote? Yes. You've been in combat, Bob. This is like from his article. <laughs> yeah. Bottles came out of the stands like it was raining. A couple actually hit me, and some of the players who didn't have a chance to run off to safety of their dugouts, thankfully without breaking and injuring any of us, as we stood around the field stunned at what was happening, Buck O'Neill and Oscar Charleston ran from their respective dugouts and told me to start walking towards second base. Why? <laughs> it was harder for it was that... yeah, it was harder for the bottles to reach. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the bottles kept well, this coming. This makes me feel this makes me feel better about game five of the ALDS in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> not a big deal. <laughs> they were just cans. Yeah. <laughs> the bottles kept coming by the dozens from all directions, and within minutes, the field was littered with them. Fearing an out-and-out riot, Buck and Charleston escorted me all the way to the center field wall, and we made an escape. <laughs> How the three of us scaled that wall and they got me to safety is still a mystery to me, but we Scaled did. the wall. I, I just picture a mob and Buck O'Neill helping somebody over the fence to... <laughs> True to the spirit of the Negro Leagues competition, the next week all was forgiven and everybody acted as if nothing had ever happened. That was your weekend, Bob. Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> had a couple of Cokes. Didn't, didn't, didn't have a good game last week, did you? Yeah, well, well, no yeah. big deal. Uh, with yeah, you? I threw a couple things at you. I threw a couple things. I missed. I missed, but you know. I'm sorry. I was good. With each passing year, the writing on the wall became clear. Jackie Robinson had broken MOB's color barrier in 1947, and with a flood of talent defecting to major leagues and bigger salaries, the Negro League struggled to stay afloat, and it appeared inevitable that one day it would go out of business. Motley began applying to umpire schools that fed organized baseball. The best one, run by Bill McGowan, was in Florida, and McGowan informed him that state law prohibited whites from teaching blacks and vice versa. The fuck is wrong with people? Jesus yeah. Christ! Shitty ass law. It was only we can't learn from each other. Sorry, it's the law. Sorry, the law says. It was only after Al Summers took over that Motley was accepted in January 1957, ten years after Robinson had broken the color barrier. The school lasted six weeks, and Motley graduated with honors, acing both the written and on-field portions of the test. Most of the umpires were given professional assignments, but when Summers called Motley into his office, he had tears in his eyes. Quote, Bob Motley, I've tried my best to place you somewhere, but no general manager in AAA, AA, single-A, or B-ball seems to have an opening for a black umpire. I am so sorry to have to tell you that, he said. Yep. Like, oh, yeah. Like nowhere, not even in like California. Apparently not. I feel like he didn't try that hard, but apparently not. Uh, well, that's what I feel too, because let's just say I know some shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bob, all right. Bob returned to Kansas City. To, did we do the same thing? Uh, Bob Almost. returned to Kansas City to finish out the final days of the Negro Leagues and resume his job at General Motors, where he had become the maintenance supervisor. Summers extended him another invitation for his 1958 school on the advanced level, and Motley finished at the top of his class. When Bob again received no offers from organized baseball, he took a brief gig in Cuba. Finally, in the summer of 1958, he got the call he'd been waiting for. Summers, who was working in the Pacific Coast League, had broken his arm, and he had told his bosses to hire Motley as his replacement. So on August 18th, Motley made his minor league debut, umpiring third base in a game between the visiting Spokane Indians and the Phoenix Giants. The local Phoenix paper described it, quote, Tonight's series opener marks the debut of the Pacific Coast League's second Negro umpire. He is Robert C. Motley, Kansas City, who has the distinction of being the only man to answer all 200 questions correctly last year on the final exams of Al Sumner's umpire school. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's just uh, second, you say. The second. Yes. Yeah. Mo- yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Molly, who was not one to take no for an answer, continually tried to break the major league's color barrier, spending years writing the commissioner and seeking the support of his white counterparts who had graduated beneath him in umpire school who had made it to the majors. Bob's campaign helped heighten the awareness of discrimination and pave the way for younger umpires of color who had followed in his footsteps. I don't know if I should read this next sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Just do it. Just do it. It's fine. This actually works. The PCL's first African-American umpire had been Emmett Ashford. Fuck. (laughs) Who would also become MLB's first black male in blue. In 1966, a full year after the Voting Rights Act had been signed into law. Sadly, one was enough for the majors at the time. That is unfortunate. After two seasons on the West Coast, Motley could see that integration into the majors was not going to come swiftly. So for 1959, he opted not to renew his contract. Motley settled down in Kansas City, raising his family, working at GM, and officiating local baseball, basketball, and football games. He was the chief umpire for the 1973 College World Series. And in 1979, at the age of 56, he finally got a call from MLB. The umpires had gone out on strike, and he was asked if he could work some games in Kansas City. Yes, It had been his dream to make the majors, but no, he would not cross a picket line. Bob retired from General Motors in 1987 after 37 years of service, and then in 1990, along came the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which Motley helped start with current president Bob Kendrick and Buck O'Neill. In 2007, Bob penned his memoir, Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars, the true tales of breaking barriers, umpiring baseball legends, and wild adventures in the Negro Leagues with his son Byron, uh, which I ordered, by the way. I can't wait to get that book. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. Um, July 1st, 2007 was declared Bob Motley Day and is adopted home in his adopted hometown of Kansas City. 
And in June 2009, he was honored in his home state of Alabama by being inducted into the Calhoun County Sports Hall of Fame. In June 2012, Motley received the Congressional Gold Medal Honor Gold Medal of Honor in Washington, D.C. for his service as a Montford Point Marine, the nation's highest civilian honor. Man of integrity. I love, I love that he didn't cross the picket line. Yeah. To, I was surprised to you didn't say anything at that point, but you were taking a drink, so. I was. No, it was, it's, well, it's all just so impressive, too, right? Like, his whole life is impressive. That's, I mean, that's why we do these podcasts, is to learn about people like this. And yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's just amazing. Uh, when asked in an interview on NPR in 2007 about how he felt looking back on the fact that he never got the opportunity in the majors that he was looking for, Motley said, quote, well, I don't have no regret because there was nothing I could do about it. It was just one of those things. And Bob continued to talk about the feelings he got when he would pass by the display of his umpire's uniform at the Negro Leagues Baseball Hall of F- or Baseball Museum. Quote, every time I see it, I smile. Every time I see an umpire, period, I smile. Especially when they started taking black umpires into the major leagues, I smile. Because I love to be an umpire. That's the only thing I ever wanted to be in my whole life, to be an umpire. Wrong, you wanted to pitch, but you sucked. No, that's true. But let him have his let him have his nice let statement on it. NPR. Yeah. Robert Bob Motley died September 14th, 2017. Oh. Oh. A rare historical figure at best, who until his death was the last surviving umpire from the Negro Baseball Leagues. And in a posthumous recognition, a lifestyle statue of Motley was added behind home plate to the Negro League Baseball Museum's Field of Legends in November 2017. Which, I can't wait until we can travel again, because I want to go to that Hall of Fame and see that field. Cause yeah, the museum. Yeah, no, we're going to, we're going to, we told Bob that we're going to go. So, so Bob, if you're listening, we, we will come as soon as the pandemic's over. I want to, I want to I, I meet Bob too. Like, I mean, just not Motley, but Kendrick. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's an amazing, amazing place. Anybody in the the Kansas City, Missouri, you know, Midwest area, if you're a baseball fan, I think that's that's the place. Like, I want to go there more than I would want to go to Cooperstown. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've already mm-hmm. been to Cooperstown a couple times, but uh, it's it's like this amazing, like like whatever we do, whenever we do that trip, like we're we're just putting a day aside for it. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're spending a couple days in Kansas City. Um, yeah, so that was amazing. I love that. Like, this is the first time that that, uh, that our, that, our stories have happened. kind of touched almost. Yeah, they've kind of <laughs> they've kind of grazed each other, and and I hate it because you're not supposed to know what my next one's going to be about. And we normally start these by being like, "This person, have you heard of them?" No, dummy. I'm telling the story. <laughs> yeah, we like you. said earlier that you were going to ask me if I'd ever heard. Of this I, know. Guy. Well, I will. I'll still <laughs> ask you. I'll still ask you. Um, but no, that's amazing. Like I, that was the thing is I had heard, I had heard of him, but like it wasn't clicking. Like it didn't click until the getting shot in the leg and being like, that's when he decided to be an umpire. I'm like, Oh my God, I know the, the, yeah. Like I knew <laughs> all of a sudden it came together. But up until then I was like, was he a, was he a ball player? Like, was he like, was he like an executive? Was he a, like, I, I had no idea. So I love that. 
I love the mystery to this one, but uh, it's yeah, it sucks that you're not gonna have that mystery. Uh, <laughs> no, but I don't like. I don't know anything about. Uh, no, I about know. Ashford's I know. I know. Life. I just know yeah. that. I know what I know about him. Tune, all right, so so uh, that was uh, that was Bob Motley, and uh, tune in uh, in two weeks for Evan yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Follow uh, us on Twitter at Doing Baseball yeah. and uh, yeah. on Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. Uh, we didn't say I it before, love- but obviously you found us on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But uh, we encourage you yeah, to please you. tell your friends to uh, find us on whatever platform they're listening to. And of course, thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, I, but, love, I, I tweeted out today. I was like, we don't tell each other about the subjects ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, you can just guarantee that there's going to be two great stories about black history and baseball. And there is, but man, <laughs> maybe we should try to coordinate a little. We were but so I, close. <laughs> so close. I, I'm just happy that like, like I was like, oh, well, this is like, and then as soon as you said that, I like hinted a little bit. Being like, oh, he wasn't the first black umpire in the PCL. But then it was just like, all right, you kind of got to say it. Maybe, maybe we'll edit it out. Who knows? Either way, I already said this. Just screw it. Anyways, I'm Sean. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Ed. <laughs> and uh, we're doing baseball. Uh, that was an amazing story. Okay. Tune in in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.